Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. In late September 2011, I had a chance to interview Rita Moreno while she was at Berkeley Rep in her one-woman show, Rita Moreno, Life Without Makeup. Rita Moreno was back in the public eye, this time by celebrating her 90th birthday, along with being under awards consideration for her role in Steven Spielberg's version of West Side Story. In my research, I discovered, this is probably the worst place to start, that you were once in an episode of Father Knows Best. <laughs> yes! <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it horrible the way we laugh at <laughs> this enormously successful show? I played Shantini, an East Indian girl. They wouldn't dream of trying to actually get an actress who was really East Indian. So I played every nationality, as, as you saw in the play. Right. I played them all. Let's talk a little bit about your show, Life Without Makeup. You live in Berkeley, and Tony Tacconi of Berkeley Rep approached you for a long time, and finally you agreed to it. What changed your mind? First of all, the thought was daunting to me of, because uh, I'd been told, you know, you should do a book and all that for years. And I kept saying, Ugh, please, no. Just the thought of having to go over all that, it just didn't appeal to me. And I had been encouraged on a number of occasions by some really important people from the black community and the Hispanic community that uh, I should do it. But it was Tony who finally talked me into it. He called me when I was 77. I'm 79 now, about to be 80. And he said to me, you know, Rita, you're 78, 77 now. You better think about this. You don't have that much time. And I thought about it, and I said, he's right. He also said some important things like there's a legacy, and you owe it to anybody who's uh, who has been uh, new in this country. They should know your story. That convinced me. I felt I had an obligation, truly. And then we uh, talked to each other along with his assistant, Mia, and two uh, laptops and a couple of uh, tape machines for a year and a half, at least a year and a half. A lot. We had big, long sessions. And, and how long was it before he presented you with a, a raw outline? A draft? Yeah. I think I got the first draft about almost two years ago. And we took it to New York to uh, uh, read it out loud for Tom Fontana, who is the, was the writer-producer uh, of Oz, because Tony uh, adores Tom Fontana's work and respects his work. He's really a good writer. And he gave us his opinions, and then we, he, uh, we went back to the drawing board, and we've had about 10 drafts. Uh, that may sound like a lot. It's really not. Sometimes a new draft has uh, 10 new words in it. So, you know, it's not just, it's, it's maybe just two pages or something. Uh, and it still needs some work. This is actually, I consider it to be a work in progress. I think it's a little too long still. You know, things like that. There are things that are not quite uh, finished. And, you know, really, you don't really know these things uh, unless you see it in front of an audience. And unless an, an audience starts to ask questions and people come back and say, well, whatever happened to blah, blah. 
And you say, gee, you know what? That went right by us. We didn't think of that. Are you revising the play as you go along then, or uh, no? is I don't, it frozen I don't, for now? I think it's frozen for now. Um, I'll be meeting with Tony in a couple of weeks, but uh, we may put in some very necessary fixes, like how did I get on the cover of Life magazine? I'm At the moment, I'm improvising because we just suddenly say, and lo and behold, there I was on the cover of Life, and everybody who's come back say, says, huh? It right. was wonderful, yeah. but how did this happen? How it, did it happen? I was uh, doing a pilot with Ray Bolger at the time, and it was during the time when what, what was called four-camera series were just starting to bloom. That means that you did a live show in front of a live audience, but you did it, uh, it was filmed with four cameras that had different angles. Right. And it was very new at the time. Desi Lu started this. With the, I Love Lucy. Yeah, yeah, with I Love Lucy. And the fact they were producing this thing with Bolger. Life magazine was covering this event, all not just Ray Bolger, but the actual event of what was happening in television in L.A. And there were a lot of contact pictures that went to the editor's office. And he said, who's this girl? She looks interesting. And they, they didn't even know my name. They said, oh, well, I don't, gee, we'll find out if you're interested. She's uh, Bolger's dance partner. And by the way, for whatever it's worth, he was a lousy dancer. <laughs> well, he was a hoofer. He wasn't a dancer. And believe me, there's a huge difference. I had the hardest time dancing with this man. And he kept saying it was my fault. <laughs> but he was a hoofer. And for those who don't remember Ray Bolger, you will when I tell you that he was, the, he was a scarecrow, right, in, in The Wizard of Oz, the movie. That's how you got on the cover, and you expected at that point for the world to open up. I don't expect anything. I was just so thrilled. I, was, I, I looked at that magazine every day, all day long. I had it with me. If I went on a bus, I would, deliber- <laughs> I would deliberately sort of open it and look at it. You know, just happened to be on the cover of this magazine. Well, getting back to Berkeley Rep. Now, you had worked with Berkeley Rep on um, on Tennessee Williams' Glass Menagerie. Yes. And, and you did Master Class where I saw you in that. Right. Did yeah. you see that? Yeah, I Wasn't saw that Wasn't that a great one. production? It was a terrific production. Yeah. You were great. And Thank this, you. The singers who came out were oh, wonderful. Oh, yeah. So uh, it's uh, oh, quite a tour de force. How, how do you put yourself in the mind of Maria Kaus for something yeah, like that? Interestingly enough, I understood her. Those things happen sometimes. And Moises Kaufman, who was uh, uh, directing, who he's the fellow who's uh, responsible for the Matthew Shepard story, great director, would try to trap me with questions. Well, why is she doing this, do you suppose? And I say, I know exactly why she's doing this. I know exactly why she's saying this. And I can't tell you how I knew, but I think a part of my theatrical self, my dramatic theatrical self, understood what was behind a lot of her... Um, actions and her fears. That one, interestingly enough, I never had any trouble to, with respect to uh, understanding the character. Whereas with the Glass Menagerie, it was more, more difficult. But Maria, I understood. In fact, I had something happen to me that's never happened to me f- before and very likely not to happen again. I really felt, and I, I swear to you, I don't believe in this kind of stuff, but I swear I was visited on two occasions. And you know what it really was, because I don't believe in that stuff, is that I was so inside the zone of this woman. I was so inside her that I felt exactly like her, or I I thought I did. And it only happened twice during the entire run. That can happen to you, and that's very exciting. It hasn't happened since. Two occasions. when, In fact, we were previewing when I was at my most nervous and terrified. But it's as though she came to me. Now, I know she didn't. I I think that stuff is... uh, 
I, I just don't believe it. I don't, won't say nonsense because I know a lot of actors would resent my saying it's nonsense. But I became this lady. That's all I can say. When I read the reviews of the people starring in it, the reviews person to person, they're all different. Time Daily, you, uh, right. whomever. And yet at the same time, you get this overarching sense of the same person. So on some level, something is reaching. It strikes from a the, chord with all the actors. Yeah. That's interesting. I would love to have seen Tyne do it. She's one of my favorite actresses. Rita Moreno, in terms of the creation, you're trying to do many different things at once. You're trying to create a focus on a sense of identity as a Puerto Rican coming to America, poor movie star, actor, person of color, woman, all of them at once. How conscious in the creation was that, or was it just... If you're going to do my story, all of that plays into it. It's just the, the most natural thing in the world. It is about identity, particularly, let's say in my case, because I don't know anyone else's story, I found out very quickly uh, as a youngster in New York when we came from Puerto Rico that it wasn't a good thing to be a Puerto Rican. It wasn't a good thing to be olive-skinned, that it wasn't good to have an accent. I found that out really, really early. I mean, I was called a spick when I was in kindergarten. And it started there because someone asked me yesterday at, uh, I was doing Univision in Spanish, you know, what's the first time you realized it was going to be tough? And I said, well, I was six. Because, and she said, they called you that? I said, yeah. yeah. Well, it was in Manhattan, right? In Manhattan, yeah. Perforce, then, you, 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 you're going to have the kind of story that tells an audience what it's like to be viewed in that way and how one person dealt with it. I tried very, very hard for too many years to be someone other than myself because I believed that was not a good thing. I didn't even have a mentor. I didn't have a, a model. Lupi Velez was way before me, so was Dolores Del Rio, so that was it. And I wouldn't have wanted to be Lupi Velez, even though I played those kind of roles later on in life when I was in my, my uh, late teens and 20s. It's so much about that and how I came to terms with being who I am. That's really what this play is about, how this particular person came to terms with her identity and accepted it. Do you think that possibly when you were very young, getting those kinds of rejections steeled you to be able to be an actress? The hardest part is the constant rejections, and they're really, really cold rejections. Oh, that's a wonderful way to put it. It's true. It, it has nothing to do with heart and humanity and this poor little kid. Absolutely. I think it's what really sent me into, into therapy, and it's the best thing I ever did because uh, I was in a bad, bad way at the point I went to see a therapist, and I went for almost seven years. Uh, a lot of that time I wasn't in town because I was doing something somewhere else. But how do you steal yourself? Or how did it happen? I think part of it is DNA. My mom was like that. Think of this. My mother, after she divorced my father in Puerto Rico in a Catholic island, left me with him and my young brother and came to America on her own, on a ship, and without knowing a word of English, got herself a job in a uh, sweat uh, sweatshop and did that for at least, uh, I would guess, four to five months until she made enough money to go back to Puerto Rico and get me. You know, you can't do all of this on, on the stage. 
it would be a, a, a one-week kind of thing. It would be, you know, <laughs> the ring. And you can't tell all of that unhappily because she was astonishing. It's just that as a woman who was not educated, who was, in fact, ignorant about a lot of things and really never evolved, she was not the best kind of wo- woman to have as a, as a mother. But on the other hand, as a role model of being able to deal with this kind of stuff. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, this woman, she uh, actually was a chef for a while. She wasn't a chef, but she was a good cook at home. She did all kinds of things. She wanted to have a, a tile in her backyard, and she couldn't afford it, of course. So she uh, went to a senior place, and uh, they taught her how to make tile, and she made tile in her, her little yard. She was very resourceful. Well, you you eventually, I guess, you steeled yourself. You actually did what was necessary to get an audition, and you got the audition, and you wound up in Hollywood. You tell the story in Life Without Makeup, Rita Moreno. You tell the story of what it was like to first go to the commissary. What was it like to have these tiny little roles at the very beginning in a movie? Would you just, like, somebody would usher you in, give you five lines you do your thing and leave. How did that work? Well, it wasn't that tiny. Those were little feature roles because they essentially, MGM thought they were going to maybe, I think they thought maybe we can have somebody who's uh, Hispanic and uh, we can make her a big star. That's that's what they, they really had. Eventually, that's what they wanted to do with me. Right. Then it, it just happened that they didn't know what the hell to do with me because it was the the uh, what what's that word for the horses when they had these things that blinders you, yeah blinders so they weren't tiny tiny they were featured roles but they were featured roles from Polynesian from Indian girls from uh, American Indian girls from Cajun girls nothing having to do with speaking a perfectly good English which I always did. You've said you created kind of this, you know, generic exotic to play. Mm-hmm. But in each of these, you hadn't had any acting lessons, no experience. That's right. They just threw you on the set and said, say your lines? Well, they give you a, a script, and they assumed that um, you will um, memorize it and uh, that you're going to have your costumes done by the costume people. They did have a um, an acting coach in MGM, which was sort of really hilarious and ridiculous. She was George Sidney's, the director's wife, Lillian Burns. And anyone who was on MGM knows that she was absolutely terrible. She was awful. And she would have a a big uh, window so she could see everybody going back and forth. And you would see constantly. She was white waving her thing. (laughs) She was waving her hands. And she would say, you know, uh, uh, I'll see you later. We'll call each other. And you're trying to do uh, uh, something from the, the, the script. It was just crazy. It was absolutely crazy. What was it like seeing yourself on film for the first time? I wasn't pretty as I thought I was. I was just, I was not pretty. But, you know, I had trouble with that anyway. I never thought I was terribly pretty. And, you know, I look at the pictures now and I think, oh, my God, I was adorable. I was really cute. And later on, when I was you know, 19, 20, 21, I was a hot chick. I was really a very sexy girl. Well, Brando was attracted to you. Mm-hmm. Should have 
maybe figured that one out. No, no, no. You know that that's like like an anorexic saying. I'm really still fat. I was. I didn't think myself as a pretty girl. Raina Moreno, you spent five turbulent years with Brando. During that period, did you ever talk acting at all? Uh, a few times, but very little. Uh, it's not something that he wanted, and I wanted to just please him. And if he didn't want me to, he didn't like my being an actress. He never saw me in anything. I think probably he probably finally did uh, West Side Story, but that's after, after we were finished with each other. So there were very few things we spoke about acting. I remember once, uh, two things. One time, um, we moved, We did a uh, film together called The Night of the Following Day. 68, yeah. Yeah. Strange and film. It, well, it was kind of creepy. A noir. Well, actually, it was really based on the uh, to Peugeot kidnapping. Marlon, that's the last time Marlon looked beautiful. After that, he just blew up. I was supposed to be a cocaine addict, a stewardess. So we had a, a scene where I was in, in a bathtub, and I was really kind of out of it. And I was talking to him, and I couldn't work it out well. So at lunchtime, I had a whole bunch of wine, and I didn't drink much then at all. And then I did the scene. And as he said to me later, he says, well, you look like you're drunk. You don't look like you're a, a cocaine person. So he said, I said, well, what do I do? Because he said, we have to do it again. So I said, what do I do? He said, well... He said, what you have to do is, what did he, how did he put it? It was marvelous. He said, I want you to be very simple, very, very simple, and don't work it. Just simply be. It was very hard for me because I had no idea what you're supposed to think or feel. But actually, I did very well. He helped me out quite a bit. Do you think that was a technique he used a lot? It must have been. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was remarkable. The one thing he told me once he, when he was doing the, the Young Lions where he played a Nazi, and I did ask him, how do you play a role where you're playing someone who's really a bad person? He said, I never think of that. He said, I just think of what I have to do to uh, rationalize what I'm doing. He said, it has to be real. And he said, I happen to be a Nazi. But I don't want to do all that other stuff, the garbage that a lot of people do. And he was marvelous in it. Well, he was terrific there. But he, he, in a movie called Burn, uh, where he played a, a, this really horrible man named William Walker. It's a true story and takes place in the Caribbean. Yeah, I didn't see that. Tell me about it. Oh, well. <laughs> no, no, seriously. Oh, it's an amazing movie. Uh, Pontecorvo, he did Battle of Algiers. Mm -hmm. And this was... Uh, this movie about this guy, William Walker, real man who comes down and pretty much destroys a country single-handedly. I mean, mm. I'm serious. Get it on DVD. It's one of Brando's best performances. Mm. Oh, I, I do have to see it then. Yeah. Okay. Rita Moreno, the story in uh, Life Without Makeup takes us through the electric company, but it doesn't take us in the last 20 years. Why did you, you and uh, Tony Tacconi decide to stop it at that point? I think it was important to reveal what was first. I mean, there's, there's always a chance that I may do more. Who knows? But uh, what, what, what really uh, loved about doing this play with, with me and for me uh, uh, by Tony Tacconi is that he was fascinated by the Hollywood days, particularly. That's the whole first act. And those days, you know, we're, I'm a dinosaur. 
these th- the people like me don't exist anymore. Who's left? Uh, let's see, maybe Joel Gray. But no, even then, I, I'm older than he. So uh, there's very few people left who can actually tell you what happened at those times. During the studio system. Yeah, yeah. during the studio system. And I think that, you know, I think that people are fascinated, actually. It's such a strange world. I mean, you know, someone like you, you must have known Mickey Rooney at MGM, right? I did. Yeah. Well, he was in there since he was a little kid. That's right. It's astonishing. And I, I visited one of his sets. He was doing something with uh, Humphrey Bogart. And uh, and I came to visit that set because I visited the sets all the time. And I would study how people were doing things. And it was just glorious, absolutely glorious to visit the sets. I got to know him a little bit, just a little bit. And he was, you know, oh, he was the same Mickey Rooney that he was the same Mickey Rooney he's always been. That hasn't changed, which is amazing to me. Eventually, they let you go, which you discuss the horrors of that and then waiting oh, for I was the heartbro- phone call. I was heartbroken. Oh, God. I, mean, I thought I was going to be a big, my MGM career was going to be always there and that I was going to be a great, great star. And I would sing and dance and... And uh, I was absolutely shocked when in the third year it was all over. You did get a role after that in King and I, and and you talk about— That's much later, yeah. That's a a few years later, Mm -hmm. and you talk about how Franz Nguyen was clearly a better fit for the role. You got the role, but you were dubbed in that movie. They dubbed your singing, is that correct? No. They did not dub your singing because Mm -hmm. on the CD I have, who was Leona Gordon then? Who? That was the name that it said, that you were dubbed by Leona Gordon on uh, We Kiss in the Shadows. No, that was me. Oh, was it? How interesting, really. I, I wish I'd brought that CD. Me I could have showed you. I could have showed you. No, no, it was me, and I didn't sing much, but I sang, it was my voice. Oh. I did My Lord and Master, so I don't know who Leona Gordon is. They might have done something way after the, uh, the, the fact, but I don't, I don't know anything about that. I was dubbed for one song in um, West Side Side Story Story because I couldn't reach those very low notes in A Boy Like That. It was a very rangy song. It still is. And they brought in someone else to do that song. During that period, were you working at all with Bernstein and Sondheim, or or was it just basically Jerry Robbins? Never saw them. Never saw them. Never met them. Only Jerry Robbins. Uh, How did you get that, the role of Anita? I auditioned just like everybody else. Uh... He was a favorite uh, not candidate because we had already worked on The King and I. And uh, when it came time to audition people for West Side Story, I had to do three kinds of auditions. I had to do the singing audition, which went well. We had the uh, dialogue went very well. And then there was this, the dancing, and that was uh, my bet noir. I was scared to death that I would never pass that audition because at that time I hadn't danced for... Oh, my God, about, I don't know, 20 years? Something insane like that. West Side Story was years and years and years later, years later. I hadn't even lifted a leg. And when I found out that I was going to um, audition for dance, I ran to the studio and I danced for two months like a crazy woman. I took every kind of dance class you could ever imagine. Tap and this and that, everything. Still, Robbins put you through hell. Oh, well, but he always did that with everybody. That's not unusual. <laughs> the Jerome Robbins stories uh, still exist about about how he tortured people. But then again, you know, he was a closeted gay man. He was filled with self-loathing, first of all. 
And uh, I think that's where the, the meanness came from. He really, really was very tough on people. Well, it was mean, mean, mean. And he was fired from West Side Story. Yes, but that was, a, in a way, a huge mistake because uh, he didn't get to do the mambo at the gym. And I don't think, I think it's the only number that really didn't work as well as the others because he wasn't there. And Robert Wise directed that. Yeah, mm-hmm. just by himself. And Robbins was completely cut out at that point. He was cut out at that point. But, uh, you know, luckily, luckily, he did America. He did Officer Krupke. He did um, uh, Tonight. He also worked out the choreography. You must have been working on that before Wise came in, right? They were working together. I mean, obviously, he did all the dancing stuff, the choreography. But he also wanted to be a director, an actor's director as well, which he did. And I think he did it pretty well. Did you become friends with Natalie Wood, know anybody there? Not really. She was kind of aloof, uh, which is sad. I think uh, she made a mistake. Uh, First of all, I think that uh, all she had to do really was just one day say to everyone, the kids as I used to call them, come to my house, we'll go have a swim, we'll have hot dogs and burgers and drinks and let's get swacked and have some fun. She never did that ever, ever, ever. I think she didn't do it because she felt very uncomfortable with us. She wasn't mean. She wasn't a rude, nothing remotely like that. But she didn't know what to do with us. And she soon found out that she was really seriously, seriously miscast. It was a big struggle for her. So that by the time that Jerome Robbins had been uh, fired... She was really prepared to just dump the whole thing. But, of course, you, you can't really quite do that, but she certainly threatened. And uh, she stopped speaking to Richard Beamer because she wasn't crazy about him. And she felt all alone. She just never became friendly with us, which is a shame. She would have found that we were uh, just a ball to be with. We were great fun. Did you have any idea? I think you, you kind of say that, that you didn't know if it would be a success or failure financially, but did you know that this would be what it became. I mean, West Side Story was not a huge hit on Broadway. That's right. I I can never believe that. Did you see the uh, Arthur Lawrence recent revival of it with Mm, his Spanish language? No. And, you know, that stopped after a while because it didn't make any sense. Well, I saw it here and they had some of it and it it just didn't work. It was jarring. It was jarring. But you got to see Jerome Robbins' choreography. Oh, and, you know, there's nothing like that. He was, he was, he was extraordinary. He was a genius, flat-out genius for sure. And if I had the opportunity right now, I, and he were alive, and he asked me to work with him, I would drop everything to be with him again. Well, I think that goes for everyone in the cast. In the late 90s, you played Sister Pete on Oz. How did you get that role? Tom Fontana. I asked him to put me in the show. I really did. <laughs> really? I said, how come? You said, you've always praised me and all that, but I don't get anything you know, with you. And he said, well, okay. I, I always found it amazing that, you know, here is this dark, violent show about prisons, and then you've got these Broadway people, Rita Moreno, Patti Lupone, and Betty Buckley. I know. <laughs> and you know what was great about it? All of us had played Norma Desmond. Oh, later on. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard. That was all of us. Betty Buckley and, and, Lupone. and Lupone and myself. We all got to play her which was marvelous. And it turned out, too, that uh, Patty was his cousin. Tom's cousin. So she said, I have to do it with you. I mean, I've got to be on the show. You had scenes together, I think. Yeah, we did. We were. 
It was marvelous. We had a great time. And how did you, what made you decide to be a Jewish mother on Happily Divorced? Because I love, I love Fran. She loved me. I loved her. And it just became this happy, happy, happy time that we had. And I love to talk like that. And I talk <laughs> just like her. Because that's how she really, really speaks. It's, it's strictly Queens. It's strictly Queens. And I love talking like that. On Electric Company, you worked with Morgan Freeman. Did you have any idea at that point? I mean, was he was pretty much just struggling actor? Did he you was a struggling actor. And he wasn't too thrilled either about being in this children's show. And, and I remember once doing my mama thing on him and saying, you know, you really got to get your act together and come on time and all that kind of stuff. It's not fair to the rest of us. I wagged my finger at him a bunch of times and... He sort of, sort of kicked, you know, the floor a lot. And then, uh, like, uh, three days later, he said to me, someone contritely, you're right. And from then on, he behaved himself. But, uh, you know, I had no idea. I really had, no one had any idea what this man could do. And then I saw him in the uh, that wonderful uh, revival play that he was so amazing in. And I was just absolutely absolutely put away by him. He's a superb actor. Did you have any chance to interact with Yul Brynner on King and I? Yes, yeah, somewhat, somewhat. And, and uh, he was, uh, he, he was a, he had a really potty mouth. The one I loved the most was uh, Deborah Carr because she would love to show me her most recent wild panties. <laughs> She'd say, Rosita, Rose, I mean, Rita, come here, I want to show you something. And she'd show me her latest panties. In terms of Doing a show like Rita Moreno, Life Without Makeup, how similar or different is that, say, in, in terms of doing your cabaret act? Oh, my goodness, that's a completely different thing. The cabaret act is, is a cabaret, and this is really about a life. It's a very, very different thing. I love doing cabaret, by the way. It's so much fun. And I miss actually doing some stuff at the... Um, Plush room. Yeah, the plush room. Did you go to the plush room? Yes, I did. Isn't that fun? Oh, that was great. I love yeah. that place. And it, was yeah. a, it was a great place, and I had some wonderful musicians, and I just loved it. Oh, the choice of songs, I mean, I would assume for the plush room, you made your choice. Mm -hmm. The choice of songs and segments of songs from Life Without Makeup, was that mostly you, or uh, or was that you and Tony, or how did that That was work? really me. Uh, the the uh, scenes on the on the fire escape, which is what actually happened in life. It was a way to escape the streets, that noisy, noisy street. And I used to turn on the radio, put it close to the um, window near the fire escape, so that I could listen to that music. And one of the songs I loved so much was a dream from uh, the Pride Pipers, and I loved that. And it's one of I think the most tender songs that I sing in the show. It's a very tender moment. I loved it. Have you ever given thought to directing? I don't think so. I don't think I would have the patience. Really? I really think I would just, <laughs> I don't think I'd be a good director. It really requires something that I don't think I have. Another question that comes up, and I, I when I've had a chance to interview actors, I, I ask this question. Do you think it's an actor's responsibility to be political, to state their opinions? How do you feel about that? I guess it depends on the, on the uh, performer. I think it's important to have your opinions. I think it's important. I think it's a, I think it's a responsibility that you have as just a human being. 
And uh, if you have people like the former president, I think you have to speak up, and I have to. I think it have to say something. I think that the gay community deserves attention as well. That's how I feel about it. Do you think that if you had a second chance, you might have thought about going into politics? Oh hell no, not even for a, a New York moment. But what I would have loved to do had I had the opportunity was to take care of children in terms of uh, children who are who haven't been cared for. I really I, that's very 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 important to me. I, I have enormous sympathy for children who. Um, who haven't been cared for. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine, told me that he learned how to read from electric companies. So I think on, on, think on one level, you actually, I think there were 780 episodes of the electric company. And so to that degree, you affected a lot of children. I know. Isn't that great? And you know, uh, my husband's Tanta, Tanta Shoyla, she actually learned how to, how to read. That just knocked me out. Isn't that great? Do a lot of dancing in this show. You're 79, and have you had you've had knee surgery, right? Yeah, I have a I have a new knee. Listen, I certainly don't do, don't dance the way I used to, and I have no 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 don't for a minute think that uh, I'm going to knock everybody out with that. But uh, I love doing it. It's really fun, and doing uh, tap dancing. I just found that I absolutely loved it, and uh, it's difficult. It's very difficult sometimes because I've lost some sense of balance, and the boys are terrific. They really protect me a great deal and all that kind of stuff, but why not? It was my idea to do tap dancing in the, the uh, Broadway number from, uh, from the movie, and uh, I just said, why don't, hey, why don't we do some tap? And I remember the, choreogra the choreographer saying, you do tap? I said, well, I used to. Let's just see what happens. And I started to do She was absolutely astonished. <laughs> well, now now you're 79, you're working on this, and you're doing the, the TV show. Do you have any other plans? Eventually, I hope that the, uh, the show may go to possibly uh, New York, possibly. Who knows? I'd like to think that maybe we could do that. If not, I'd still like to uh, take it on to a couple of places and see how it, how it works. When you were looking for a role, what brought your attention to it? The role itself, the people you were working with, the place? The script. I think always, always. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>